for the Stock Car Racing Time Machine podcast. I'm your host, Tim Naiman. Today, you're listening to episode 25, the 1997 running of the Jiffy Loop 300 from the New Hampshire International Speedway in Loudoun, New Hampshire. This would be the fifth ever Winston Cup race completed in Loudoun, and this would be the first season that New Hampshire International Speedway would have the opportunity to host two NASCAR Winston Cup races. The configuration of the New Hampshire International Speedway was a 1.05-mile facility with 12 degrees of banking in the corner. Many refer to the New Hampshire International Speedway as a Martinsville on steroids because it took many of the same similar characteristics to run well at the track. New Hampshire had fairly long straightaways and flat, tight turns, and getting your car to be able to roll through the middle of the corner was crucial. In addition, early in the race in New Hampshire, there typically wasn't an outside groove. So it was very important for the drivers to be able to hold their car in the bottom of the racetrack. When we looked at favorites for this race, one that would have to stand out would be Jeff Gordon. He had won the 1995 race at New Hampshire. And in addition, he had just won the 1997 race, spring race at Martinsville. Bobby Hamilton had run second in that race. And Hamilton had also been successful winning at Phoenix in the fall of the 1996 season and taking the King Richard Petty back to victory lane. Hamilton had always had an excellent record on flat tracks, as did Ricky Rudd. He was the 1994 winner of the Jiffy Loop 300, and Rudd always seemed to perform well on hot, slick, and flat racetracks. Rusty Wallace had to be seen as a favorite, too. He was always very successful at Martinsville, and he had actually won the inaugural race at the New Hampshire International Speedway in 1993. Qualifying for the race would take place on Friday. And Ken Schrader won his first pole since the 1995 season when he was driving the number 25 Budweiser car for Rick Hendrick at Pocono in June of 1995. This time, Schrader had gotten on the pole driving the number 33 Skoll-sponsored Chevrolet for Andy Petrie Racing. The second fastest qualifier was one of those great flat, flat track drivers in Bobby Hamilton. New England native Ricky Craven from Bangor, Maine qualified third. It was a great qualifying effort for Chad Little. He qualified fourth in the number 97, John Deere Pontiac. Dale Jarrett was the fifth fastest qualifier. Good effort for Steve Grissom qualifying sixth. Cal Petty was seventh fastest. Eighth fastest was last week's winner in the Pepsi 400, John Andretti. The ninth fastest driver was a surprise. Jerry Nadeau in the number one RNL Carriers Pontiac for Richard Jackson. Terry Labonte qualified 10th. Ernie Irvin was the 11th fastest qualifier. Rusty Wallace qualified 12th. Sterling Marlin qualified 13th. Jeff Bodine was the 14th fastest qualifier, and Jeff Burden qualified in the 15th position. Other notables included Mark Martin qualifying 16th, Bobby Labonte qualifying 17th, Ricky Rudd qualified 18th, Darrell Waltrip was 20th fastest, Bill Elliott qualified in the 23rd position, Dale Earnhardt was 26th quick, and Jeff Gordon had a surprisingly poor qualifying effort, qualifying just 29th fastest. This would be the worst starting spot for Jeff Gordon since May of 1994. There was only one driver who failed to qualify for the race, and that was Billy Standridge in the number 78 car. One team that had attempted all the previous NASCAR Winston Cup races chose to not show up for the Jiffy Loop 300 in Loudoun, and that was the number 91 car sponsored by Spam and owned by Joe Falk. The season had started with Mike Wallace driving this car, but he had suffered many did-not-qualifies, and after he failed to qualify for the 1997 California 500 in late June, Joe Falk released Mike Wallace from the ride. 
for the Pepsi 400 at Daytona, and two weeks later, Joe Falk had decided to put Loy Allen, who was an excellent restrictor plate qualifier in the car, but Allen failed to qualify for the race. The number 91 car did not show up to run at New Hampshire, and they would surface back later in the season. They joined the number 19 car, which earlier in the season had shut down operations. Remember, the number 19 car was owned by TriStar Motorsports and had sponsorship from Child Support Recovery. The season started with Billy Standard driving this car, but in the third race of the season, Gary Bradbury stepped in the ride. He did a nice job qualifying the car for quite a few races, but eventually this team ceased operations as well. That meant that we were having less full-time NASCAR Winston Cup teams coming to the track, and as a result, only one driver missed the race, which we mentioned earlier, who was Billy Standridge. So previously in this podcast, I had talked about when we discussed these races that I was going to try to talk about pop culture, what was going on in my life too as well. And I feel like that I've gotten so focused on the race reviews that I've done a poor job of this. So I want to share kind of a significant event that happened the day before this race. So my birthday is on July 11th, and I turned 14 years old. And on July 12th, I attended a baseball game between the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Houston Astros. I think I've talked about this previously on my podcast, but I grew up in Pittsburgh and, of course, was a big Pittsburgh sports fan. Pirates, Steelers, Penguins. And for whatever reason, I really had a special affinity for the Pirates. I enjoy all these sports teams. I really, really like the Steelers. Um, But as a kid growing up in the late 80s, as I kind of became aware of the Steelers in the early 90s, The Steelers were kind of on a decline. Chuck Noll was kind of at the end of his coaching career at that point in time. But in 1990, the Pirates had been gotten really good. And, you know, at this point in time, I was about six or seven years old and starting to really get into watching sports closely. And if you remember, if you're a baseball fan, the Pirates uh, won three straight division championships, but each time failed to get to the World Series. And that had always just made me a big, big Pirates fan. I Like I said, I like the Steelers too as well, but if you ask me my favorite professional sports team, I would pick the Pirates. So after the Pirates failed to make the World Series in the 1992 season, losing a heartbreaking game to the Braves in Game 7, where they had a one-run lead and Francisco Cabrera singled in two runs, including Sid Bream, who was extremely slow and running on two bad knees, beat the throw from Barry Bonds uh, in what I would probably call the most crushing loss for me as a fan for a professional sports team because everyone knew that the Pirates were likely not to be as good the next couple seasons. It was almost certain that Barry Bonds would not be signed back, and he was not. He went to the San Francisco Giants. So the Pirates kind of struggled through the next four seasons being below 500, and this was kind of a different time in baseball too. So they still hung on to some of those players that made them good in the playoff years like Jay Bell and Jeff King and Andy Van Slyke and teams weren't just actively necessarily trying to tank like they do in this day and age. They tried to actually put a decent product out there and be as competitive as possible. But in the middle of the 1996 season, as the season reached the all-star break and past the all-star break around the trade deadline, the pirates ended up unloading pretty much their entire team um, and or at the end of the 96 season when Jim Leland left the Pirates. So going to the 1997 season, the expectations for the Pirates were extremely low. Many predicting that this Pirates team might not even win 50 games, which is almost unfathomable for most Major League Baseball teams. You know, you play 162 games, losing 100 games is terrible. So, and they had a very low payroll, it was like $11 million. I remember, if you remember Albert Bell, at that time he was playing for the White Sox, he was actually had a greater salary for the season than the entire Pirates team. 
Well, this Pirates team surprised everybody and was hanging in the division race with the Houston Astros. Now, their record wasn't that great. For the most part, the entire season, they hovered somewhere between about five games under 500 and about four or five games over 500. But they actually went to the All-Star break leading the division. But the first two games after the All-Star break were against the Houston Astros at Three River Stadium, and they lost both. So I was attending the game on July 12th, 1997. It was a Saturday night baseball game. And my family was up visiting from Houston, which included my cousins and my aunt and uncle, too, as well. And my friend worked for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and she was able to oftentimes get us really, really good tickets to games. So I had pretty good seats down the first base side. And the pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates was Francisco Cordova. And this was a pretty talented Astros team. They had Craig Biggio on it. They had Jeff Bagwell on it. They had Luis Gonzalez. They had Billy Wagner as the closer. So the game starts out, and there's just not really any scoring. It's a shutout. Nothing really exciting is happening. Um, but as the game builds in the innings, Francisco Cordova, the pitcher for the Pirates, has a no-hitter going. So, you know, the game gets into the sixth inning, and you're like, wow, he still has a no-hitter going. But the game is still scoreless, and the game gets into the seventh inning. And um, there was a nice catch made by the first baseman over-the-shoulder catch, Kevin Young, uh, to keep the no-hitter going. But for the most part, not a lot of real close calls where there were really remarkable plays to keep the no-hitter going. So the Pirates still can't scratch a run across, and the game goes to the top of the ninth inning. Um, and Francisco Cordova retires a couple batters, and Chuck Carr is up for the Houston Astros. He's trying to bunt his way on for a base hit. He actually gets hit by the pitch. So he gets to take first base, and eventually that means that it's going to be Cordova versus Jeff Bagwell, at that time one of the most feared sluggers in the National League. So Bagwell's up, and he swings, and he breaks his bat. You can hear it just kind of shatter, and it's just a lazy fly ball to right field, and Jose Guillen catches it. So Francisco Cordova has pitched nine shutout innings, but the Pirates are still tied in the game 0-0. Zero to zero. They fail to score a run in the bottom of the ninth inning, so the game goes to the top of the tenth, and the Pirates manager, Gene Lamont, decides he's not going to put Francisco Cordova out there. So he puts a new pitcher out there named Ricardo Rincon, and although he does walk one batter, he's able to get out of the inning without giving up a hit. So the game now goes to the bottom of the 10th inning. And in the 10th inning, the Pirates get a couple base runners. They have runners on first and second, and the hitter was Mark Smith. And the pitcher for the Astros, John Hudek, throws a pitch, and Smith crushes the ball into the left field seats for a three-run homer, and the Pirates win the game on walkout fashion, and they get a no-hitter, too, as well, winning the game 3 to nothing. I've been to a lot of regular season Major League Baseball games, and this is probably my favorite regular season baseball game that I've attended, and honestly, probably one of my favorite regular season baseball games that I've either watched on TV or attended to as well. It was a great scene at Three River Stadium. At that time, the Pirates weren't drawing great crowds, but they had had a sellout. It was a fireworks night. There were 44,000 fans in the seats. It just felt like a playoff atmosphere and just a really memorable moment for a big Pirates fan who the day after his birthday got to see a combined no-hitter pitch between two pitchers. So that's kind of a fun Tim's story. Uh, now we'll get on to talk about the Jiffy Lube 300. The Jiffy Lube 300 would be run on Sunday, July 13, 1997, under overcast skies in Loudon, New Hampshire. Ken Schrader led the field to the green flag. He had won his first pole since the June race in 1995 at Pocono, and Bobby Hamilton was on the outside of the front row. Just before they got the green flag, the pit reporters indicated that Dar that Daryl Waltrip had to change engines before the race. Remember, at this time, you did not have to go to the back of the field for, an for changing engines. 
Also, there was a new driver in the field. Randy McDonald, who was a Canadian driver, would be running in the number 79 car. The green flag came out, and Ken Trader was able to grab the lead entering turn one, and Bobby Hamilton dropped back behind him in second position. Trader was able to lead the first lap, and Ricky Craven was able to get to the inside of Bobby Hamilton off of turn four and move into the second position. As the drivers raced in the second lap, there was a big crash in turn three. Brett Bodine had heavy front-end damage, and Ward Burden and Derek Cope were involved too as well. The first caution of the race officially came out on lap three. Derek Cope had initially spun, and that caused Ward Burden to spin too as well in reaction to Cope. Unfortunately for Brett Bodine, he plowed into the side of Ward Burden with no opportunity to get his car slowed down. Bodine would make repairs to the car, but not only be able to complete 55 laps and ultimately finish in the 42nd position. The race would restart on lap 8, and Dale Earnhardt was one of the big movers in the first 10 laps of the race. He had moved up to 15th from his 26th starting position. Bobby Hamilton had passed Ricky Craven and now had decided he wanted to get to the lead, and he was able to get to the inside of Ken Schrader off of turn 1. And he was able to complete the pass, getting into turn 3. So Schrader led the first 12 laps, and Bobby Hamilton grabbed the lead on lap 13. Ricky Craven was able to move up to the second position, and Dale Jarrett also followed through, dropping Ken Schrader back to fourth. Jeff Gordon was struggling early in the race. He had only moved up two spots from his 29th starting position in the first 15 laps. On lap 24, Ricky Craven was passed by Dale Jarrett for second position, and it didn't take long for Dale Jarrett to get around Bobby Hamilton and take the lead off of turn four after Hamilton had led 18 consecutive laps. Ernie Irvin was able to pass Ricky Craven and move into the third position. The running order at lap 50 was Dale Jarrett leading, Ernie Irvin in second, Bobby Hamilton in third, Ricky Craven was fourth. Pole sitter Ken Trader was running in the fifth position. It was a good day for Chad Little, number 97, John Deere Pontiac. He was running sixth. John and Jetty was in the seventh position. Terry Labonte was eighth. Steve Grissom was running ninth. And Cal Petty was tenth. Green flag pit stops would start around lap 78. And the Yates teammates decided to pit on lap 85. That gave Ricky Craven the opportunity to, to lead a lap on lap 86, and Bobby Hamilton, who had pitted earlier than the Yates teammates and only gotten two tires, grabbed the lead on lap 87. As a result of Hamilton's early pit stop, this gave him the opportunity to get fresh rubber and gain a little bit of an advantage over Ernie Irvin and Dale Jarrett. At lap 100, Bobby Hamilton was the leader. Ernie Irvin trailed Bobby Hamilton by 1.6 seconds. Dale Jarrett was in third. Jeff Burton was running fourth. It was a strong run up through the field for Burton, who had started in the 15th position. Joe Nemechek was running fifth. Rusty Wallace was sixth. John Andretti was seventh. Dale Earnhardt was eighth. Mark Martin was ninth. And Cal Petty was running tenth. Earnhardt continued his charge through the field, and on lap 102, he was able to pass John Andretti on the outside of turn two to move into the seventh position. Jeff Gordon continued to struggle, reporting that his car was very loose and he was running just 22nd. He had to pit on lap 106 after just running 22 green flag laps. Ernie Irvin was able to grab the lead on lap 112 while the race was on commercial, and this moved Dale Jarrett back to second and Bobby Hamilton third. When the TNN crew came back from commercial, they reported that the reason that Jeff Gordon had pitted was because of a cut tire. On lap 120, there were 22 cars in the lead lap. The next driver to have misfortune would be Bobby, Bobby Hamilton, he would be forced to make an unscheduled pit stop on lap 124, and it was a four-tire pit stop, and then they had major problems in the pits. It took nearly 30 seconds to make the pit for a pit stop, and Hamilton's strong early day had faded into disappointment. It was a great run for Joe Nemechek. He was running in the fourth position. 
On lap 130, Jeff Burton continued to move his way up to, through the field to third. Jeff Gordon now was a couple of laps down, struggling in 36th position, and his teammate Terry Labonte was running 11th. Dale Jarrett was beginning to close in on Ernie Irvin as Ernie tried to work through race traffic. And on lap 138, DJ was able to pass Ernie Irvin while the race was on commercial. Dale Earnhardt, meanwhile, was closing in on Joe Nemechek to try to run in the fifth position. At the halfway point in the race, with 150 laps complete, Dale Jarrett led. His Yates teammate Ernie Irvin was second. Jeff Burton ran third. Joe Nemechek was fourth. Dale Earnhardt was now running fifth. It was a good day for Rusty Wallace in sixth. Andretti was seventh. Mark Martin was eighth. Kenny Schrader was ninth. And Cal Petty was running tenth. Green flag pit stops would begin on lap 153 when Ken Schrader pitted. Jeff Gordon was lapped for a second time by Dale Jarrett, was now running two laps down 32nd. Now, I know earlier we said he was, Jeff Gordon was two laps down, but he took advantage of his fresh tires to briefly get one of his laps back, but now Dale Jarrett put him back two laps down. But then Jarrett started the struggle, and Gordon got back around him, but again, Jarrett passed Gordon back to put him back two laps down. It was reported that Joe Nemechek was slow off of turn two, and also that Randy McDonald, the Canadian driver, had to retire from the race due to brake problems and would finish in 41st position. Dale Earnhardt pitted on lap 168, and Jeff Gordon surprisingly pitted again after only completing 60 green flag laps. Ernie Irvin pitted on lap 170 and had a good pit stop of about 19 seconds. Dale Jarrett pitted on lap 173, but he was reporting concerns about his motor starting to skip. His pit stop was 19.5 seconds. Both Jeff Byrne and John Andretti were able to lead a lap during the exchange of green flag pit stops, and Dale Jarrett regained the lead of the race on lap 176. But Ernie Irvin was able to grab the lead from Dale Jarrett as it seemed that DJ's engine was beginning to sour on lap 183, and Jeff Burton took second position from Dale Jarrett. There were 19 cars on the lead lap. Burton began to close in on Ernie Irvin, and there was starting to be tight racing as Ernie Irvin was trying to put a lap on both Cal Petty and Hutch Strickland. But before he could do that, the second caution of the race came out on lap 195 due to a wreck involving Rick Bass in turn two. We had run 187 consecutive green flag laps. There would be yellow flag pit stops, and Dale Jarrett would take an extra pit stop to try to check to see if there was a plug wire issue that was causing his engine problems, but there was no luck. In addition, note that Terry Labonte decided to pit, re-pit to top off his fuel tank on lap 197. The race would restart on lap 200 with 101 laps to go, and the running order was as followed. Jeff Burton had the lead, Rusty Wallace was in second, Dale Earnhardt was third, Ernie Irvin was fourth, pole sitter Ken Trader was running fifth, Bill Elliott was in sixth, Mark Martin was in seventh, Joe Nemechek was in eighth, Jeff Bodine was in ninth, and Steve Grissom was running tenth. Jeff Gordon, who had had a tough day, was running in 34th position, two laps down. Now, with 101 laps to go, it was almost impossible for anyone to make it on fuel as the Loudoun racetrack is over a mile in length. So it meant that almost certainly everyone was going to have to come to pit road to at a minimum get a splash of gas. And there could be some teams that would strategize and maybe try to split the run in half and try to get maybe two tires and try to take advantage of those tires. The problem with that is, is that if you likely made a pit stop for two tires, unless you were running at the very front of the field, you were probably going to get put a lap down. And then if a caution caught you a lap down, obviously in this day and age of NASCAR Winston Cup racing, there was no lucky dog or wave around. You would have to earn your lap back. Jeff Burton got a great jump as the race restarted, as did the top three cars, and they all cleared lap traffic as they got into turn one. 
Ernie Irvin was able to get the inside of Rusty Wallace, and Dale Earnhardt followed him through. And then Dale Earnhardt was actually able to get side-by-side with Ernie Irvin as Irvin slipped up the racetrack between turns three and four. The two cars actually raced side-by-side for two laps, and Ernie Irvin showed quite a bit of strength being able to maintain the second position while on the outside of Dale Earnhardt. Ten laps after the restart, Jeff Burton had pulled away to a a two-and-a-half-second lead. With 70 laps to go, the top five was Jeff Burton leading, Ernie Irvin in second, Dale Earnhardt third, Rusty Wallace in fourth, and Ken Schrader in the fifth position. Burton had put nearly another second on his lead and had a 3.4 second lead over Ernie Irvin. Dale Jarrett was really struggling after the restart, his engine problems showing up worse and worse. He'd actually been lapped two times by lap 335 with 65 laps in the race. There was no change in the top five with 60 laps to go. And now the pit reporters were starting to talk about what the pit strategy would be. It was pretty certain that almost nobody would be able to make it all the way on fuel. So the question was, would most drivers wait till somewhere between about 10 and 20 laps to come in and just get a short amount of fuel? Or would some drivers try to pit earlier, possibly for two tires, and try to take advantage of the fresh tires and make up the difference as the other drivers stayed out? Joe Nemechek had a flat rear tire, left rear tire, which was extremely disappointing and also a broken axle. Nemechek looked like he was poised for a top 10 finish, but as happened to him much of the 1997 season, when he had a good run, it seemed like disaster always struck. Steve Grissom had worked his way up into the 6th position, and Jeff Bodine was having a good day in 10th, and Terry Labonte was in 11th. Dale Arnott was able to get around Ernie Irvin with somewhere around about 35 laps to go. Sorry, I don't know the exact lap count because when I was watching the YouTube version of this race, TNN did not have their scoring rundown up on the screen at that time. Jeff Burton had a massive lead. He was leading by seven and three quarters seconds with 35 laps to go over Dale Earnhardt. With 30 laps left in the race, Jeff Burton was leading. Dale Earnhardt was second. Ernie Irvin was in third. Rusty Wallace was fourth. Ken Schrader was fifth. Steve Grissom was sixth. Good day for Bill Elliott in seventh. John Andretti was running eighth. Mark Martin was running ninth, and Terry Labonte was hanging in there in the 10th position. With 29 laps to go, pole sitter Ken Trader decided to pit, and he took on two tires. TNN would come back from commercial with 20 laps to go, and it was reported that thus far, Bobby Hamilton and Ken Trader were the only two drivers that took, chose to take two tires. All the other drivers had taken fuel only. The top four remained Burden leading, Earnhardt in second, Irvin in third, and Steve Grissom in fourth. Burden's lead was still six and two was still sizable, just under seven seconds. With 16 laps to go in the race, Jeff Burden decided to pit. He took five seconds of fuel. It was a close call as Burden left his pit and Earnhardt was trying to come in his pit. Earnhardt actually had to swerve his car to the right, but neither car had to brake momentum too much, and Earnhardt made a quick pit stop to get his splash of fuel. Ernie Irvin led laps 285 through 287, and he pitted on lap 287. This gave Terry Labonte the chance to grab the lead, and Labonte would lead laps 288 through 291. The TNN booth with Buddy Baker, Eli Gold, and Dick Berggren wondered if Terry Labonte would try to stretch his fuel all the way, but there was no way that Labonte could make it to the finish, and he would come into the pits on lap 291. This allowed Jeff Burton to re-grab the lead, and it was reported that Jerry they do was out of the race due to brake problems and would finish 39th. Burden had a big lead over Dale Earnhardt, and as the cars came to the white flag, it was clear that if Burden could just cruise back around with no problems, he would easily win the race. And Jeff Burden came to the checkered flag and picked up his second career victory 
winning the fifth ever race at the New Hampshire International Speedway. There was a big wreck on the last lap involving Robbie Gordon and John Andretti. And John Andretti had just absolutely destroyed the rear end of his car. And he was hot with Jeremy Mayfield. So they showed a replay where Andretti went running down the track and then ran out in front of Jeremy Mayfield's car and made him stop and then had some choice words for that he said to Jeremy Mayfield in the passenger side of the car. Later, as they interviewed John Andretti, he reported that he felt like Mayfield just wrecked him for no reason. Andretti was racing hard among the top 10. This was disappointing for John Andretti. He had had that good run at Daytona, and they were trying to build on another good run. He hadn't had a lot of luck on non-restrictor plate tracks this season, had a chance to get its top 10 finish, and also the team planned to take this car to the Brickyard 400, which is another flat track. Mayfield reported that he was just simply trying to get out of the way. They were having problems with the carburetor, and they'd gotten three wide and just ran out of room. Jeff Burton had led 99 laps on route to his second career NASCAR wins the Cup win. He had picked up his first victory in April in Texas when he won the inaugural race there. Burton had started in the 15th position. It was reported on the TNN broadcast that Jeff Burton had owned the most points on super speedway races this season. Those would be racetracks of one mile or longer in length. Dale Earnhardt finished second, and although he did not lead a lap, he matched his best finish of the season. He was also second at the Winston 500 in Talladega in early May. In addition, this was the first time all season that Dale Earnhardt had earned back-to-back top five finishes as he was fourth in the Pepsi 400 the previous week at Daytona. Rusty Wallace finished third, and it was his best finish since a second-place finish Memorial Day weekend at the Coca-Cola 600 at Charlotte. Rusty also did not lead a lap. Steve Grissom got his best-ever career finish in number 41, Kodiak Chevrolet, for Larry Hedrick. His best previous career finish was fifth place two times. Mark Martin came home fifth. It was a good day for Bill Elliott in sixth, who had struggled the last couple of weeks with mechanical problems. Terry Labonte finished seventh, leading four laps. Ernie Irvin finished eighth. He, eighth. he had led 42 laps. Unfortunately, Ernie had engine problems late in the race that dropped him down in the running order. Ricky Rudd came home ninth. Jeff Bodine got a good day in 10th. After all the engine problems he'd had of late, that had to feel good. Ken Schrader, who started on the pole, finished 11th and led 10 laps. Jimmy Spencer was 12th. Cal Petty was the final car on the lead lap, finishing 13th. John Andretti finished 14th after the late race crash, and Hutch Strickland finished in the 15th position. Other notable finishers included Mike Skinner. He was the best finishing rookie in 21st position. Jeff Gordon ended up 23rd, two laps down, which he actually salvaged a decent day because on that last restart, he was outside of the top 30. So considering how bad Gordon ran, that was probably about the best he ran all day at the finish. Bobby Labonte finished 27th. Bobby Hamilton was 31st. He had led 42 laps early in the race, but unfortunately had that tire problem and was never really over to, able to overcome it. It was a tough day for Darrell Waltrip in 33rd position, and the engine gremlins popped up again for Dale Jarrett, who finished 38th. He ultimately completed 293 laps, but it was a very low attrition race. Jarrett had led 98 laps and at times looked like he had one of the best cars. But now, Dale Jarrett had experienced four engine problems in the past nine points-paying NASCAR Winston Cup races. The statistics for the race were a time of race was 2 hours and 42 minutes and 35 seconds, the average speed was just over 111 miles an hour. The race was slowed by just two cautions for 10 laps. Jeff Burton's margin of victory over Dale Earnhardt was 5.372 seconds, and there were 14 lead changes among eight drivers. 
Terry Labonte's seventh place finish and his ability to lead a lap, along with Jeff Gordon's struggles and finishing in the 23rd position, allowed Terry Labonte to gain the points lead by three points. Now, it's interesting. Labonte had chosen to top his car off on the last yellow flag pit stop. That gave him the chance to run a few more laps under the green flag. And although he wasn't able to stretch his fuel all the way to the end, it allowed Terry Labonte to lead a couple laps. And in that time in NASCAR wins the cup racing, if you led a lap, you gained five bonus points. So Gordon had not led a lap during the race at New Hampshire. So Terry Labonte's ability to lead the lap gave him the opportunity to have a three-point lead in the points instead of Gordon leading by two points. For Jeff Gordon, it was by far his worst run of the season in terms of how the car handled. You know, he had a bad finish at Atlanta due to an engine problem and had bad finishes at Daytona and at Texas and also at Dover due to crashes. But this is the first time they just didn't handle well at all. And that was the first time all season that in back-to-back races, Jeff Gordon failed to score a top five finish. Mark Martin continued his hot season. He finished in third position, and now he was just 52 points behind Terry Labonte for the points lead. Dale Jarrett again experienced engine woes, and that dropped him 165 points back and forth. Jeff Burton was fifth in points, now just 199 points out of the points lead. Dale Earnhardt, who had two good back-to-back weeks, found himself trailing Terry Labonte by 212 points. So Burton and Earnhardt had kind of worked their way back up into the fringe of the points fight. And Earnhardt had to feel pretty good because he finally got a good finish at a non-restrictor plate track. And he had momentum with back-to-back top five finishes. Jeff Burton had been excellent on the super speedways, and there were a lot of super speedways still left to be raced. So they weren't totally out of this points championship, although it looked bleak a couple weeks ago for both of those two drivers. Bobby Labonte had another difficult day, and he now found himself seventh in points, 386 points back. Ricky Rudd was 8th in points, Jeremy Mayfield was ninth in points, and Ted Musgrave sat 10th in points. Rusty Wallace and Bill Elliott were, were 11th and 12th, respectively, in points. So when we look at the big stories for the Jiffy Loop 300 at New Hampshire, Jeff Burden's excellent season continued. Burden now had picked up two victories and was sitting in the top five in points, and the 99 car was running well on a variety of racetracks. Burden, of course, had gotten his start at NASCAR Winston Cup Racing, driving the number 8 car for the Stavola brothers for two seasons. And he had shown some good finishes in what was not thought to be a really exceptional team. Then he had a chance to drive for Jack Roush in 96. And he had a couple chances at victory, but wasn't quite able to break through. But most saw Burden as a rising star coming to the 97 season. But I don't know that anyone expected him to pick up two victories in the first 17 races of the season and be the best points getter on super speedways. It also had to be a good feeling for Dale Earnhardt. His two other top fives in 1997 NASCAR Winston Cup season came at the restrictor plate tracks. So for Earnhardt to have a good day at an intermediate type racetrack had to have him feeling more confident about the second half of the season. And Earnhardt was only 212 points out of the lead. He had a lot of drivers to jump over, but he wasn't totally out of this if he and Larry McReynolds were getting their chemistry figured out. It was also a good day for Rusty Wallace. He had struggled of late, and to get a third-place finish, he had to feel pretty good about things at Loudon. Mark Martin continued to roll along. With the exception of running out of gas at California and being involved in that crash at Daytona, he had been doing excellent since the short track races at Bristol and Martinsville, where we talked about earlier in earlier podcasts that he had overcome back pit races to finish in the top five. Since that point in time, Martin had been on absolute roll, and he picked up those two victories at Sears Point in Talladega. 
It was a tough day for both Jeff Gordon and Dale Jarrett, but for different reasons. Yates Racing was having a lot of engine problems. We had talked about this earlier in the podcast, but Dale Jarrett had now had engine problems in four of the last nine points playing NASCAR Winston Cup races. As for Jeff Gordon, it just was not a good day for him. They struggled with the car throughout and then also had that tire problem. And Gordon was really fortunate to finish in the 23rd position because he spent much of his time of this race outside of the top 30. So next week, the NASCAR Winston Cup Series would head back to Pocono for their second race there, the Pennsylvania 500. For the Stock Car Racing Time Machine Podcast, I'm Tim Naiman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.